Well, so at the beginning of this week, I was trying to figure out what do you think the mood's going to be on Sunday because you like to preach to the mood. If everybody's upbeat, you know, you want a kind of upbeat sermon. If everybody's in a pensive or reflective mood, you want to preach sort of a theological reflective sermon. If everyone is uh, fatigued or weary, you want to preach an encouraging sermon. And the problem is that Things change so frequently now, you might start one way uh, on Monday, and by the time Sunday gets here, everybody's in a different mood. So here's what I want to do. I just want to make it kind of lighthearted today. I want to give you something a little shorter than normal, and I want to give you something that I hope will just kind of help you not only survive the week and the pandemic and all that sort of stuff, but something I think that will really kind of help you flourish so that's the goal. We're going to help. We're going to flourish. We're going to start with plastic, as you might have guessed, because that's where all good flourishing starts. That's a joke. So um, actually, the name of Earl Tupper is familiar to most of you because of Tupperware. Earl Tupper, coming out of the Second World War, developed what's called the Tupperware Bowl. At that time, it was just really, really unique. Uh, so we're used to plastic, but even as late as uh, the 1940s, most typical consumers had never used plastic. So it was considered kind of risky, uh, you know, it was made out of, of coal oil, so it was made out of this real earthy, maybe even dirty thing. And uh, when Mr. Tupper developed his bowl, he couldn't get it to sell. And so he put it out there in the market. There were magazine articles about it. He was already scheduled to get awards for developing this bowl, you know, that you could press down in the middle. It was kind of unique. And it would, you remember what it would do? would burp. Remember the burp, the big Tupperware burp? Uh, but he couldn't get anybody to buy it. So he's looking for some way to market this thing when up comes this divorced woman living with her mother who was just a secretary down in Miami. I say just a secretary because she eventually became a senior vice president for the company. When she first bought her bowl, a Tupperware bowl, she couldn't imagine why everybody hadn't run out and bought one. So she decided that the reason people weren't buying the bowl is because they didn't trust it. They thought it was made, it was made out of plastic, coal oil, you know, it's probably unsafe, it may have been filled with poison and so forth. So it dawned on her that if you want to persuade people to buy a product like this, you must first have a relationship with them. So she started what has become now just an American phenomenon, this multi-level marketing strategy of the Tupperware party. And the whole point of the Tupperware party was when we develop a relationship with each other, you'll come to trust me enough that you'll buy the product. She was so effective at these Tupperware parties. So it actually went through several different names. So when Tupper actually invented it, he was using a process called poly tea or a plastic called poly tea. So at first they called them poly tea parties which really didn't work very well. So then they changed them to patio parties, which still didn't sell very well. And when she finally called it, you know, a Tupperware party, everybody was on. And again, it was so successful that she was eventually promoted to a senior vice president of sales for the company Tupperware. And even now there's an entire exhibit to her in the American Smithsonian Institute. Here's what she learned that I want to give you today. She learned that people's lives are changed through relationships. So every good salesperson knows this. This is why universities have development departments, you know, uh, entire development departments. So people whose only job is to go out and establish a relationship with you because they know that you give to relationships. We give to relationships much more so than we do to causes. 
This is why insurance salespeople, for example, will be very involved in the community because they understand that you want a relationship with someone before you'll buy their product. In the same way, the Scriptures acknowledge a fundamental truth, and that is loving relationships, Christ-like relationships, are the primary way through which people's lives are changed. That's why when Jesus came, one of the first things He does is He starts calling disciples. He's building relationships with people. Jesus understands if you want people to change, you need to establish a good relationship with them. Much of our learning is relational. Much of our learning occurs in a social context. So maybe as much as 95% of what you think you know, what I think I know, is actually only the consequence of a relationship I have with someone. Think of all the places that you know exist out there, but you've never actually seen it. You just know it because of relationships. Think of all the technologies that you get introduced to that you have no understanding of, but because of relationships, you have confidence in them. So relationships really matter in becoming fully human and certainly in following Jesus. And that's why we've had this series called Think Small. Because here's the deal I want you to know. North Boulevard does not need you in a small group. It's really important that you know that. In fact, I just want to say this. Um, North Boulevard is doing, we're doing fine in the pandemic. I mean, every, all of our members, we're all tired, we're all weary. But the congregation is doing fine. You guys are giving awesome. The, the contributions are great. Uh, the staff is upbeat. The, the shepherds are doing their job. The deacons, not only are the deacons doing their job, they've advanced. They're actually taking more territory now. It's not that the congregation needs small groups. It's that we need small groups. I need them. You need them. Because you don't flourish outside of healthy, Christ-like relationships. So we're not trying to sell relationships because we think the church needs them. We're trying to help you. We've had this... Uh, this uh, vision of thinking small, that is every one of us taking the next step in small groups. And maybe a good text for that is this one, Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, where Paul just reminds us that at the end of the day, because we're Christians, we belong to one another. It's a real important concept that I want to develop over the next couple of minutes, what it means to say that we belong to one another. But let me just start by saying a few things. So over the last several weeks, we've really been focusing on taking the next step in small groups. And I'm really proud of you guys. I just am. Some really cool news, uh, some numbers that have come in. So in the last six weeks, we've had 175 of you join small groups, which is the size of a medium-sized church. Actually, just in the last couple of months have joined up a small group. We've started 16 new small groups in the last six weeks. And now we have people even from outside of Middle Tennessee who have joined North Baltimore. They place membership in North Baltimore, but also they're members of small groups. So we actually introduced uh, new members, I think, this morning. Sean, my brain may have been somewhere else when you went through this. But Annette and Mike Sutherland from Murphy, Texas. Annette and Mike, glad you're with us this morning. So they have placed membership in North Boulevard. They're actually in the Quarles, a small group. They're, they still live in Dallas, Texas. To my knowledge, actually, I spoke with you guys, but I don't remember if you said, I don't think you guys have ever been to Murfreesboro. Uh, but one day we'll just go down there and visit you, or you can come up here. Uh, Mike's a physical therapist, and Annette is a financial advisor, uh, but they just kind of stumbled on North Boulevard working through the, um, the, the online experiences that are available out there. And I think, I just want to share, Mike give me permission to share this. He said he found a church that was excited to follow the Bible, which is really cool. And that is who we are, excited to follow the Bible. But by plugging into a small group, 
Not only do they receive the kind of love they need, but they're able to give it. So what we're trying to do is encourage everyone, take the next step. We've got older groups that had fizzled a little bit, some of which now have relaunched, and others have just been re-energized. And so now at North Boulevard, we have about 1,200 of you active in small groups, uh, about 120 small groups. I think the attendance last week was about 2,100. So that means more than half are now in small groups. It's a really good number. And I can remember, um, I'm just seeing Ed McKnight sitting out there. I think I saw Ed. Edwin, are we? Yeah, yeah. Edwin, you and I can remember when we had like two small groups and it was pretty controversial, if you'll remember, my friend. <laughs> God has been really good to us over the last 20 or 25 years. And so, the small group is the best way for you not only to find the love you're looking for, but just as important, for you to give the love you need to give. That's how we do it. So last week I spoke theologically about how the early church for the first 300 years flourished in house churches. Remember, they didn't have big buildings. They really didn't have the big Sunday experience that we have. I love our big buildings. I'm for them, and I'm for the Sunday experience. We like this. But I just want to remind you that the real change occurs when you and a small group of people can love on one another. That's when real changes occur. So I want to paint a quick picture of small groups in the Scripture, and then I want to just explain to you a few things that, uh, that I think you don't want to do in a small group, and then I got um, one final little gift for you before we're done. So Romans chapter 12, I think, is the best blueprint of a small group in the Scriptures. So if you have a Bible or it's on your phone or whatever you got, open it up to Romans 12. If you're a small group leader, if you're a host or a leader, we use different terms for it. If you're like a lead disciple maker among a group of disciple makers, Romans 12 is a text you'll want to remember. Because if you're trying to think through, what do I aim for? What, what, what does it look like if my small group really sort of becomes everything it should be? Romans 12 is the best go-to text I know of. It's a portrait of a healthy small group. Romans 12. I'm just going to read it and highlight a few of the words. They're highlighted in red. And as I read it, just see if you don't understand or, or, or if you can't conceptualize here a picture of what a healthy small group can look like. I'm going to start at verse 4. You could read the whole text, but for time, I'll just start at verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So in a healthy small group, you make a commitment to one another. It's not just a meeting. It's a real commitment. In a small group that's healthy, we understand that we belong to each other. Next. We have different gifts, Paul says, verse 6, according to the grace given to each of us. I'll just pause to say, in a healthy, small group, each of us brings what we can contribute to the group. And it might be different. It should be different because God has gifted each of us differently. So when we come to a small group, in a healthy small group, each one of us brings a different gift. And by so doing, we form a whole and a complete body. So Paul lists seven of the gifts. I'll read them quickly. He says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And then Paul's next statement, love must be sincere. So the word here simply means unhypocritical or real love. And again, this requires the kind of commitment that a lot of us haven't really been invited to do in our groups. 
So it's really easy for us to think that our group is a meeting. I meet with people on Sunday night, maybe once a week or maybe every other week. I really want to challenge you to go beyond that. So I've been in a lot of small groups in my life. And some of the small groups have been well-intentioned, but so shallow. I'm being honest. I've been in groups where I've been in there for months, maybe even a year, and I still didn't even know the last names of some of the members. I just want you to know that at some point that might be helpful, but it's a loss that we really haven't committed to one another. We haven't really signed a covenant that says you and I are in this together. So I mentioned this before. I'll say it again. But a number of times in the 40 years I've been in ministry, someone has had a collapse in their marriage or we discover an affair or there's some terrible thing that occurs. They've been in a small group for years. You go to the small group to find out what's happened, and nobody in there had any clue this was occurring. What that tells me is that the group was so shallow, they were never really getting into one another's lives. I want you to know, if you want the real benefit of the relationships that really will help you flourish, you have to go beyond superficial. As Paul says, love needs to be real. It needs to be sincere. He says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So the goal in your small group is to cultivate that which is good in one another. Be devoted to one another in love. And so in a good, healthy, small group, there's a devotion to the group. I'm committed to this thing. Now, by the way, one thing to remember about small groups is that it may take you a couple of months to really develop this desire to stay with it. And actually, that's a healthy thing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing when people explore a small group and sometimes you just realize it's not a good fit. That's okay. But at some point, you need to make a, devotement, a, a devotion to it. You need to devote yourself. You need to make a commitment to it. That's what I'm trying to say. Honor one another above yourself. So in a healthy small group, we're looking to honor one another. By honoring one another, we're elevating each other. We're lifting each other up. We're giving each other encouragement. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In other words... When you make a commitment, follow through. By the way, we, we baptize a lot of Chinese people at North Boulevard. And one of the things I've noticed that's different from many Chinese, I don't want to stereotype everybody, but it's different from many Chinese and many North Americans is this. Watch this. In, in many cases, I can get someone from zero to baptism, North Americans, in about two weeks. If I really put my persuasive powers to work, I can get you from zero to baptize in about two weeks in North America. The problem is two weeks later, a lot of them are not faithful. It's a shallow commitment. If you work with a Chinese, here's what you'll notice. You may take two years to get a Chinese, an Asian, to make a commitment to be baptized. But once they're baptized, they are in it for life. And you know why? Because they understand the seriousness of the commitment. They're good at making that commitment. What I'm suggesting is that all of us in North America follow that model. Realize that I'm making a commitment. Don't make too many commitments in your life. But when you make a commitment, stick to it. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. These are just traits, live traits in a small group that we're joyful when we get together. We have a common hope that we're patient when things are difficult, that we pray together. Here we go. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So I just address this. When you're in a small group and something happens, someone says something you don't like, maybe you feel insulted, don't leave the group. That's not what followers of Jesus do. Followers of Jesus figure out a way to work it out. 
One, one weakness in America is the collapse of our families. And so a lot of us are just not learning how to work things out with each other. We're not learning healthy ways to disagree. So if we feel insulted or we feel bothered, we just leave. We just go down to the next group. Or we leave and we go to another church. You know, the churches in Murfreesboro, sometimes I feel like we just rotate members around. That you get mad at this church, and so you leave and you go to that church until you get mad at them, then you leave and you go to this church. At some point, we need to learn how to live with one another, which means learning how to bless even when we don't like what's happening. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So in each case, we're getting a beautiful picture of what can happen when our small groups are healthy. So the goal has been, the target has been, Take the next step. Wherever you are at North Boulevard, we're challenging you to take the next step. And now, I want to turn to one other thing. So I was trying to think through what would be really helpful in how to manage a small group in such a way that everybody flourishes. And the best way I could come up with it was to think about some of the things that I've seen that are not very helpful to small groups. So here's how I put it. I'm going to walk through what I consider to be the top seven mistakes of a small group. I might could have pulled a scripture out here and there to illustrate these, but I'll just speak from some experience. And if you think I'm wrong, no problem. So are you ready? Number seven, we're doing the top seven mistakes of a small group. Failure to use your time wisely. I mean a couple of things by this. The first thing I mean is that for a lot of us, we don't meet enough as a small group. Listen, it takes a lot of time to develop real relationships. As we were preparing for this lesson, some of us were looking for studies online, and we found a study by a guy named Jeffrey Hall. So he's a, a communications professor at KU, University of Kansas, and he does an analysis on what it takes to build a real, authentic relationship. I'm not going to read all the numbers, but let me just put it this way. There are two things that really matter, he says. One of them is the quantity of time. You can't do it without spending time with each other. But the second, he says, is when you actually get to how people are feeling. So small talk generally doesn't build a relationship as much as talking about people's feelings. That's why at the beginning of the pandemic, some of you are going to remember this, what did I advise you to ask? Don't ask how you're doing. Ask how are you feeling. So what this researcher says is that that kind of question begins to build real deep and rich relationships. So spend time with one another, and I would suggest you get in a rhythm. So I'm uh, in one group, but the last group that I was in, we had a rhythm where we would do Bible study. Uh, I think it was like uh, two weeks out of the, a month was Bible study. One week was common ministry, and then one week was just fun. In fact, uh, our fun thing was to go to the escape game. So we would go to the escape game. We went several times. We were getting free shots at the escape game. But I want you to know these were some of our best times, the fun times. Because during the fun times, we actually got to build relationships with each other. We just kind of let your hair down and just be who you are and laugh together. And now it just sort of really bonds you together when you do this. So the first thing is, in using your time well, develop a rhythm that helps you cultivate rich relationships. But the second thing I want to say is this, honor the clock when you meet. I think this is really important. So if you're going to meet from six to eight, start at six and end at eight. Now, some of you, so we have, we have every kind of personality type in the room and online as well. For some of you, the idea that we just wander in, 
And we met till 11.30 the other night and we were all, you know, crying and singing songs and so forth. For some of you, that's, that's the most spiritual experience you'll ever have. But you need to know that for others of you, that was the worst nightmare they could ever have had. We stayed till 11 o'clock. There's no end to this. There are a lot of really professional people at North Boulevard and they kind of need to know that the time is predictable. So what I would suggest you do is this, honor the time. Say we start at six, we end at eight. Now, here's how you can manage the problem of things are really going well and we don't want to end. Do it this way. Say we end officially at 8. If you need to leave at 8, no problem. Anyone who would like to stay later, feel free to stay later. Now you've sort of given everybody what they need to have in order to function without dreading showing up. Because if you tell me we're going to leave at 8 and then you leave at 11 every night, I'll just be honest with you, I'm going to start dreading going to the meeting. In fact, I'm going to start thinking, mm, I might need to find another group. So that's the first mistake that I want to make sure we avoid. The second one, letting one person dominate. So we all know how this works. There's always one expert in every small group who has an opinion on everything, and they always have to express it. Or there's always someone whose problems are so enormous that your group just can't keep up with them. What do you do? All right, give you a few ideas. First of all, recognize the seriousness of the problem. Nothing will kill your group like having one person who always has to talk. About the, week, the fourth week of that, and everybody in the group starting to think about what it would be like to go to a different group. So it's a really serious issue. You have to deal with it. And by the way, if you really want better advice than what I'm going to give you, go talk to a school teacher. They have to do this every day of their lives. They have to deal with the one person who seems to suck all the energy out of the room every time they meet. So the second thing I want to advise, when you're meeting, call on other people. Don't let a person dominate the meeting. And ask others to help you. Just talk to others and say, hey, you know, so-and-so's got problems that are bigger than we can do. Can you help me with this? I would even say this. Sometimes you might need to just pull aside and say to someone, look, you've got great opinions, but I need to hear from other people. When you start to speak, other people can't speak. And then remind us, remind your group that there are all sorts of resources. Many of the problems that we're experiencing are really more serious than a small group can actually deal with. So we have Celebrate Recovery. We have a deacon team that's really knocking the top off right now of doing pastoral work for people. We have a full-time counselor, Nathan Jernigan, has been on our staff for 30 years. We have shepherds who are doing their work. We have support groups, the ministers. Know when to refer someone up. So that's the second. And the, the others, I go a little bit more quickly. So, top seven mistakes of a small group. Number five, thinking that it's a meeting instead of a family. So, if I were just to ask you the question, raise your hand. How many of you would like to have more meetings in your life? Okay, just, I'm just telling you here in, in, at, at the building, those of you online, not a single hand went up. Nobody needs another meeting in their life. I, I've got all the meetings I need. I think I've had more meetings in my life than any six other people would like to have. I don't need another meeting. But now if you ask me how many would like to be in a loving family, now that's different. We all want that. So what I'm suggesting is don't think of it as a meeting. Think of it as cultivating a family. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for uh, people that we can love, people whose lives we can invest within and who can invest back in our lives. Okay, top seven mistakes, number four. Well, we don't make much commitment to each other. So this is a really tricky one. Again, for North Americans, we don't like to make commitments. North Americans do not like to make commitments. 
when you join a group, make a commitment, even if it's for a year. It's okay to do that. It's okay to say we're going to do this journey for a year. At the end of the year, it's over with. But while you're walking for that year, commit to one another. Say, okay, you get preference over the others. Here's my cell number. You, we're in this together. You call me. I'll call you. But we're going to commit to each other. That's really how things get changed in your life. It's through commitments. Uh, most of us have all the casual relationships we need, but we don't have enough people we can love. Mistake number three. When we're light on prayer or light on challenging one another or light on application, or let me put it this way, when we never expect obedience. So this is a real critique of how we do small groups, not North Boulevard, but North Americans. We meet, we study, we talk, and we leave. We never check to see if anybody obeyed it. We never even ask them, do you plan to obey it? We never ask people, how do you think you're going to obey this? And next week when I ask you what God did, when you did obey it. It's like, for whatever reason, we think if we talked about it, we did it. I want you to know the real blessing, the miracle of God comes not when you talk about doing something, but when you actually do it, when you obey it. So I want to encourage us in our groups, aim for obedience. Read the Word of God and obey it. In fact, I'm going to give you a warning. James, the book of James says that if you look at the Word of God and don't do what it says, you're better off never reading the Word of God. I really believe this is true. If you look at the Scripture, read what it says, and then don't do it, you are better off not reading the Scripture because now you're blowing God off. It's better to say, I didn't even know it said that, than to say, well, I knew it said it, but I wasn't going to do it. So expect obedience. Here's a healthy way to do it. You're sitting in a group. You're looking at a text. It talks about forgiveness. You say, okay, who do you need to forgive this week? And when they say, well, I need to forgive so-and-so, say, okay, how can we help you do that? Well, you know, I, I don't, maybe I should do No, no, let's, let's build a plan. Let's help you forgive. And the next week, tell us what God did. How did God respond to that? So obedience is the secret to the miracles of God. Number two. Not thinking about multiplication. So I just want to encourage us all to realize we're never going to split your group. We don't want to split groups. If you invest your life in someone else and you want to stay together forever, that's great. We're for that. But do be thinking about how you can multiply. How can you reach other people for Jesus? So, you know, Julie and I got married. We raised kids. Uh, Rachel and Dalton have their own home now. Jonathan and Mackenzie have their own home. Did we divide the house? Did someone come in and force us to split? Now we hate each other. Now we never get to see them. No, we multiplied. Now there are three homes, and we still see a lot of each other. We like each other. I mean, it's a really cool thing. It's okay for you to give birth to another group. That's not division. That's multiplication. It's having babies. So just be thinking, how can we, if, if, if what God has given us is such a blessing, how can we get the blessing to other people? How can we help others? And then the number one mistake I think we make is we wait for somebody else. So I've gone through all the mistakes, and some of you are thinking, well, I don't lead a group, so I can't really do these things. Or I'm not the host. We'll have to talk to the host about that. You know what? You can just start doing it. So... Um, I get asked to speak at other places quite a bit on disciple making. And a lot of times it's churches that really haven't discovered the language, even though the phrase appears in the Bible hundreds of times, churches just haven't discovered it for whatever reason. And they'll be a little bit, you know, well, can we do that? And so I've said this a hundred times. I get in trouble sometimes for saying it. I'm, I, but I'll say, 
you don't need the church's permission to do this. You don't need the elders' permission to do this. You got God's permission. Just do it. If you really think somebody needs to be loved, whose permission do you need for that? You don't need my permission. You don't need Joe Robert. You don't need all the people who are doing all the small groups. You don't need their permission to go out there and love somebody. You already have permission. You don't have to wait for your host to do it or your small group leader or the right curriculum to come along. Just, you can just start doing it. It really is that easy. We already had the mandate. We've had the mandate for 1,970 years. We've got the mandate. So now we just do it. Here's the deal. Each one of us has spiritual, relational needs that are best met in a small group. Cool little story. So on July the 20th of 1969, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, first man on the moon. One man. Um, it took 400,000 people to put that one man on the moon. Do you know that? Engineers, assembly line workers, uh, uh, administration. It, it took 400,000 people to put one man on the moon. And I'm not even including all the taxpayers, the nation, you know, the president's vision and all that sort of stuff. I'm just talking about the actual workers. Here's the cool thing. So Armstrong was training. He had been a test pilot. He'd been an astronaut for several years. You know one of the things they did with Armstrong before he landed on the moon? NASA took him around and introduced him to probably thousands, I don't know how many, but certainly hundreds, maybe thousands of people among those 400,000. You know why? They took him to factories where parts were being manufactured. They took him to engineering rooms. They took him to administrators. They took him to bureaucrats. They took him all over the place because they wanted the average guy who was on the assembly line putting wiring together to know there's a real person behind what you're doing. And his whole life will depend on how well you perform. They wanted it to be about a relationship because relationships will change everything. That's why when Jesus is asked the question, what's the most important command? He puts in the term of a relationship. It's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's loving your neighbor as yourself. So relationships matter. Okay, so I'm going to finish, but before I finish... I'm going to just stretch you just a little bit. I ran across a video, and I have waited for a whole year to find the right place to use it, and it looks like you're going to get it today. First service didn't get it because it didn't feel like the sermon was worth doing. I was like, everybody just wanted to leave. I wanted to leave. We wanted church to be over. And uh, you don't look as bad like you want to leave quite as bad. <laughs> and I wanted you to have a good laugh. So here's my deal. Uh, I'll have a word after this because Sean's waiting to decide whether I come up now or not. So the point of the video is this. We've talked for three weeks about small groups. The time for talking is over. What step can you take next? So watch this. This is the coolest. I've watched this video 138 times. This day you fought with honor. This day you vanquished those that mean to smite us. The Dark Lord forged his enemies to wreak their terror. But we persevered and slayed them forthwith. In the years to come, they will sing our victory song as we sung for our forefathers. Sorry. For the fa Sorry. Sorry, God. Uh, just one thing I thought I might bring up. 
Whatever is it, brother of the watch? Fellow kinsman. Yeah, this. Honored knight of the third this, men. This is, is what I want to talk about. We are using way too many words, guys. How doth thou mean, proud warrior of the north? Brave son of yeah, the... There. That's what's... Like. We could really speed things up around here if, if we just cut down on the wordage. How so, brother of the cloth? Defender of the north. Well, like in battle today, huh? um, when you yelled, um, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, noble horde, raise thy shields from yonder field of battle approaches, is it thy mm -hmm. enemy's arrows? arrows. Yeah. yeah, next time, just yell duck, I reckon. You know, I mean, a lot, a lot of us died before you finished talking. So, not speak in such an elongated way for the, for the sake of time. Exactly. Actually, and, and just while we're on the topic, we were just talking about this morning. Yeah. Um, the tales that we tell, the one about the ring and the sh short, hairy foot people, mm -hmm. maybe that could be just one story, you know, instead of six, three-hour, unnecessarily long stories. Some merit you may have in your words, my brother. I see how my verbose retelling may elongate the... I don't, I don't think you, you do. No? Um, yeah, even this, the, the victory speech you're making, I, I, I don't know, I, I just think maybe just say we won or something. You know, you guys, yeah? Uh, yeah. Your words have resonated deep in my mind, my brother. Again, I don't, I think, see... they, I don't think they have, because still, he's still doing it. We won! Yeah! Okay, enough talk about small groups. Take the next step. Let's win. Stand up, let's sing. <laughs>